0: This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Matt Davis.
1: Hey everybody, this is Matt Davis. In this episode, I sat down to talk with Dr. Vasanthi Jayaraman, who is a professor at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Dr. Jayaraman studies the molecular actions of ion channels. Specifically, she uses several techniques to watch the movements of the proteins that make up ion channels. She hopes to discover the key molecular movements involved in the binding of a drug to an ion channel. This information could inform the design of new drugs that target these channels. Also, in the episode, our ace producer Lauren stepped in towards the end for some burning questions. Now, let's get on to the episode. So, you grew up in India, yeah. and you got your undergraduate and master's. How was that experience, and what sort of studying science in India? How-
0: Versus here? Yeah. I think what, what I found positive was the fact that we had a very solid theoretical background. I did my uh, my, my degree was in chemistry. So uh, I did quantum mechanics and organic chemistry and, and so on. And when I came to this country, the first thing I found was I was able to do really well and compete really well with the other students who had gotten an undergraduate degree or master's from here. The place where I felt like I didn't have as much of a but i felt like i was lagging behind was uh in the experimental side of things so i think it was also because of the kind of research that i was involved in i decided to do laser spectroscopy and i was i didn't have the opportunity to be exposed to that kind of uh you know cutting edge technology back there and so um and so i was a little lost you know, to me it was a black box to start off, and then I had to learn all the you know ins and outs, and I was a little intimidated. It's like when you're first driving a car, and then somebody asks you to fix the fix the engine, you're like sitting there and saying, mm-hmm. "I barely can put the you know key in, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I know where this where, where I have to push and press for the car to move." But don't ask me to you know to open yeah. the hood and start to clean up the you know do the oil change. You know, so that's that was sort of how it was. I came, I. Could could, you know, turn on the laser, do a few things, but then when it broke down, I had to really be the mechanic and you know, open it up. And so that's, and
1: that's where you learn the best is my troubleshooting. Part. Right. Uh-huh.
0: But that's the part that I felt like I wasn't prepared for. So um, the part that I really felt I was very well prepared for was the theoretical, you know, book related stuff. And uh, maybe if I had done organic chemistry, I wouldn't have found a big difference because we had a really good, uh, you know, lab where I could do organic chemistry. But here I was doing laser spectroscopy, which I had never been exposed to. So.
1: Now, were your parents academics, and what did they think about you getting into science as a career? Oh,
0: that's a great question. So um, my mother uh, was just a high school graduate, and uh, she felt very strongly about the fact that she was she could not pursue a higher education. And I think she was the reason I pretty much, um, you know, she, she felt like she missed out on it. She felt like she lost her independence uh, because of the fact that she could not get a higher degree and so um, right from day one that was something she kept telling me she kept telling me you should you should get a degree you should be independent you should be able to you know do what you have to do and uh, I think that was the biggest, biggest thing. My dad was very supportive, but I think my mom was the driving factor in, in terms of really pushing it. Because in India, women are still, you know, asked to... They, you know, we are given we're given the opportunities in that you can go get a degree, but once you're done with your engineering, most likely you're expected to do a nine-to-five job and, you know, um, sort of stay at home. And, and so um, I think she allowed gave me the opportunities uh, or oh, she stood up for me and said you know she she has to go do these things and my father was supportive what took me beyond that point was my husband he really wanted me to go into academia. He was really there saying, you can do this. So it was a mix of my parents and my husband that brought me where I am.
1: And you study um, ion channels.
0: So um, I not just study ion channels. I I study a certain type of ion channels. And their job, the, the type of ion channels that I look at, their job is to sort of convert the chemical molecules that come to it and convert it to an electrical signal. So, um, there's there's like one nerve cell that liberates chemicals, and then these chemicals, which are small molecules, come and bind to this other nerve cell, and then they open uh, channels so that ions can go in and out. So, there are like switches which allow, which turn on events, and the switch is basically converting chemical to electrical signals.
1: And what specific types of channels do you study?
0: So, it's called glutamate receptors. And uh, the switch that I told you is basically converting uh, glutamate, which is the chemical, the small molecule, into electrical signals, in which case, in this case, it's usually um, sodium going in initially. So it's ions going into into the receptor. So we're trying to understand how glutamate is able, such a small molecule like glutamate, is able to go in, bind to these very large proteins, and make them open this channel so that the ions can go in.
1: What does glutamate do in the brain in general?
0: So it's very important because again, glutamate is is the molecule that binds to the channel and these act as switches. So they are the the more often these switches are opened and closed, it sort of um, strengthens certain networks and it sort uh, it underlies learning and memory. So these cha- the, the conversion for the glutamate uh, to be into these electrical stimuli underlies learning and memory in our brain. So that's the good side of thing. Even uh, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. So um, when you have excess glutamate liberated, um, you have um, excitotoxicity so the basically the nerve cells die and this is sort of the underlying thing that happens during stroke or in diseases such as ALS. ALS is deugarrick's disease. In that case it's happening in a spinal cord. So there's an excess of glutamate and the spinal cord neurons are dying and then you have, you know, neurological deficiencies and then the, the muscle deficiencies. And then the person, sadly, these days, it's uh, the life expectancy is about two years, I believe, at most. So it, it's a good thing in the sense it's important for normal physiological function. It underlies the learning and memory. But it's a bad thing when in excess and is, uh, is involved in stroke and ALS.
1: Can you tell us about some of the specific techniques you use in your lab and What does that look like, and what are the outputs from those?
0: Uh, We start all the way from individual bonds. So we are looking at vibrations of individual bonds. And in this case, of course, glutamate is our molecule of interest. So we are looking at the motions of glutamate as it vibrates. And in looking at the vibrations, we can understand what is happening to the glutamate. So when the glutamate is vibrating by itself, it has a certain frequency. When it comes into the protein, it has a certain frequency. And that frequency tells us about the surroundings of the glutamate. It tells us how the glutamate is interacting with the protein. And so by looking at the frequencies or the bonds, we can get an idea about what is happening in different parts of the molecule. But that's that's sort of when the glutamate comes and binds. But then it then undergoes it makes the protein undergo large scale conformational changes. So in order to find out the conformational changes, the technique we use is called fluorescence resonance energy transfer. So what you do is you put uh, you you design sites. In our case, we introduce cysteines or unnatural amino acids. And then to those sites, you can tag specific fluorophores. So you can have a donor fluorophore and an acceptor fluorophore. So the donor basically takes the light. So you shine light on the protein. It takes the light and it transfers this energy to the acceptor fluorophore. Now, this transfer of energy, which is non-radiative, radiative, um, is, is dependent on the distance. So the amount of energy transfer depends on the distance between those two. So, um, by shining the light on the donor and seeing how much energy is transferred, you basically can determine the distance. And so, you can determine the distance in the resting state when it's bound to glutamate or when it's desensitized. So, you're able to map the conformational changes as the protein is carrying out its function from the time it binds to the glutamate to the time the channel opens. And then, of course, the ultimate thing is is the, the reason we're starting all this is the channel part of it. And the channel can be studied by electrophysiology, so uh, you just, uh, you just record the currents using electrophysiological
1: measurements. And from your work, what specific contributions have you found in your lab?
0: So I think the biggest difference between what we do versus what crystallographers do. In, so in crystallography, you can look at the crystal structure and it tells you a lot about what, what, where everything is. It, it's, to me, it's, it's like a foundation. It tells you where each, each atom is and how the molecule looks and so on. But then what we are able to do is take it one step further and build on this foundation and sort of look at the dynamics of how the protein is moving. And that's the key. In you know, in terms of spectroscopy, you're able to watch the protein do its work and do, watch it like a movie. So starting from the glutamate coming in and, and the protein changing and, and ultimately doing the function.
1: Are you aware of some technologies on the horizon that you think are going to really impact this field or what sort of? things would you wish that you could be able to do to really get at the questions that you want to ask?
0: Yeah. So um, as I said, we're really watching the proteins, right? But it's not actually watching the individual proteins. We're watching a group of proteins. Most of the time, uh, the techniques that we're using are average measurements. So um, what what really where the field is going right now is the single molecule methodologies. So what you can do is, look on a single protein and see the conformational changes in the single protein. Um, the technology is already there for the single molecule measurements, and the technology is already there for measuring the single channel measurements, so looking at the channel activity and the single molecule level. So now the it's just uh, at the point where it would be nice to bring those two together to do it on the same platform. So what this will allow us to do is Every time the the channel opens, you can see the conformational change. Every time the protein just, uh, you know, uh, binds the ligand, you can watch the ligand binding and then watch the channel opening. So this way you can look at a single molecule and look both at the structure and the function. And that will really give us a lot more information than where we are right now, where we're looking at uh, either one or the other or looking at average measurements.
1: And ultimately, what do you think sort of all of this work will What will we gain in terms of how the brain really works knowledge?
0: I I think this is sort of the first step in understanding how the brain works. So, you know, this, as I said, this is the first switch that turns on and then you have the um, other channels opening and the action potential generated and then further on and further on. But um, which then, of course, forms the networks and so on. But really, this is just one, one part of the puzzle clearly it's not it's not going to solve the whole puzzle, but it gives you one piece of the puzzle and Once you get the other pieces together, then you're able to put it all together to understand the whole way uh, in which learning and memory works, or you know what is the underlying mechanism in in stroke or even in designing better drugs for neuroprotection during stroke and so on
1: do you have uh hobbies outside of neuroscience what do you sort of how else do you occupy your time you know besides all this really intense Intense. research yeah (laughs) uh
0: lots of hobbies actually sometimes you know I wish I had more time to do hobbies yeah yeah Uh, so um, on my fa of course, uh, you know. In addition, because I, I do have little children, so yeah, um, I go to all the older, I go to my son's soccer game. I'm the soccer mom cheering on the sidelines, <laughs> screaming. You know, yeah. <laughs> the people have to hold me back, <laughs> ready to go fight with the, <laughs> with the with, uh, you know a referee. But um, uh, other than those kind of activities, which I really absolutely enjoy, um, the uh, what I like to do is sew. I like to sew. Um, and for instance, I, uh, after a long time, I did, went back to sewing and I did my daughter's Halloween uh, costume. So, oh, yeah. uh,
1: what was that?
0: It, it was a sunflower <laughs> <laughs> and I posted it very nicely on Facebook and everybody's like, nah, you didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, they wouldn't even trust that I could, you know, sew because no, you, you're a chemistry professor, but yeah. you're a science professor. What are you doing with sewing? So yeah, sewing is my, I um, found it very
1: meditative or sort absolutely. of zen and you just repetitive motion yeah. Yeah, yeah you can sort of turn your brain off and yeah
0: absolutely sometimes you need to do that
1: so what approaches do you take to science in conducting your research and generating new hypotheses and getting inspiration
0: i'm very fortunate in my multidisciplinary training so you know i have a chemistry a phd but i did my postdoc in sort of a neuroscience related subject and so I'm able to sort of go uh, read different areas. So, you know, I, I look at inspiration from true chemistry experiments and how can I put that in the context of the neuroscience field or take the uh, the questions that are there in the neuroscience field and say, how can I put the techniques that I know as a chemist into that? So my inspiration comes from the fact that I have this multidisciplinary training and I look look for those different areas to pull in.
1: From. I know Dr. Aldridge told me to ask about your uh, your teaching certificates or your excellence awards. Can you tell me a little bit about that just because he asked?
0: <laughs> I actually love teaching. Okay. I think uh, if there's one thing I like to do more than research, uh, research it's actually uh, teaching. I wish I could spend more time just teaching. And Uh, And I I actually like teaching undergraduates, uh, believe it or not, more than even uh, (laughs) medical students that I do right now. Uh, And that's because I think they are still sort of a little easily moldable. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I used to... Not jaded. Not jaded. Yeah. (laughs) Not not really. I think when you're an undergraduate, uh, learning is different. You're learning for the sake of uh, knowledge and so on. As a medical student, you're more limited. You have so much more that you have to do uh, in that short short period that you're there. And your goal is to become a doctor. So, um, you know, sometimes... the students just sit there and wonder why am I here in a biochemistry class, and so on. And and you know it's because of the number of things that they have to do. But as an undergraduate, I felt like I could really reach out to this uh, to the undergraduate students and sort of open their mind about physical chemistry or or bio. Biochem- so it was fun teaching physical chemistry to the biologists and uh, biochemistry to the physical chemists. That's 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 what I used to teach. So those two different topics, and so it was. It's really nice to be able to sort of teach a tough thing like uh, quantum mechanics to a biologist and, you know, watch that look on your face saying, oh, I actually understood that, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's that to watch that look on their face and see that they are, you actually reach through. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is that's something It's it's just I think that's the best joy that you can have to be able to teach a tough topic. Um, and to be able to feel like you've made a difference. Mm-hmm.
1: Has studying science changed your outlook on life at all? I don't
0: think uh, so. I'm sure I would have uh, felt the same way, irrespective of what, what path I, I had taken. Uh, not really. I don't think ha- science in particular has de- molded a specific me. Mm-hmm. It's just my experiences mm-hmm. have molded who I am, and I think, Maybe I would have gained sort of the experience, maybe not the same way, but in different uh, other directions, even if I had decided to do something else, but yeah. I enjoy doing it, uh, doing science though. I like letting my mind wander.
1: Yeah. Just daydreaming in your office, you know.
0: I know that's the best <sighs> part of research, right? I Is mean, that what so...
1: professors do when they close their doors? <laughs> I don't they think always should... look like they're un- busy, but they're just probably...
0: Oh, daydreaming. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. Probably.
1: I just need some me time.
0: It's it's funny. It's the time that I actually really let my mind wander is when I'm driving. So, when I'm driving to work, I usually call my lab like I, yeah. invariably my students know I call between 8:30 and 9 because I'm driving. It's like I have a thought and I have to let them know that this is, "Hey, did you try this?" or, you know, when I'm driving back home and I'm like, "Oh no, I forgot to tell you this, you know. Why did you try this one, you know?" So,
1: so daydreaming is an important tool for the scientists.
0: Absolutely. Not that I daydream when I'm driving. No, just, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I just let my mind wander yeah, is what it wandering. is. Yeah, wandering. Okay. Yes.
1: Did you have any other questions that you, burning questions? Well, I
0: was interested in the education stream. You know, is there anything, any favorite moments you've had teaching? Any specific students that have taught you something? So, um, favorite mom- as I said, the favorite moments is when, I, when I'm when i able to reach through our, uh, you know, like a tough concept and the student. Um, also, the other times when I really felt good is like, for instance, I had an undergraduate student. She's very good, but for some reason, she didn't do well uh, in one semester, and her whole life goal was to go to med school. And so, she came in crying into my office uh, saying, uh, you know, this is it, I'm... I'm doomed. I don't have anything at this point. I don't have any, any, any. you know, I don't know what I'm going to do after I finish my uh, undergraduate degree. And so I said, why don't you, okay, why don't you come into the lab and do a little bit research with me and see if you like it. And um, she, was, she just felt like, oh, okay, never mind. I'll be nice to her. And so she came and did. She just absolutely loved it. And then when she finished uh, her undergraduate degree, she had so many offers from Stanford and Duke and 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 right now um, she's doing a, a postdoc at, at uh, I believe Harvard or MIT I don't know. But in general, she just she just came back and told me, I'm so glad you told me that there were other avenues, you know, to be able. To guide students uh, hopefully with with the aim of having uh, you know having a better future um, not just giving up hope those are those are the things that really make me happy to see that I've done, made a difference that's so it's not really teaching in a class but it's also teaching the student in terms of long life and so on you know what there are other avenues don't give up hope you know that kind of mentoring mentoring is the what I'm looking for yeah so that's that's the part that I really like to mentor and to help people get to where they need to be. But you say you asked me about challenges. Or yeah, <laughs> in teaching. Oh, uh, I think the biggest challenge was when I was a new assistant professor. I looked very. Uh, I, I'm I'm small and and I think I looked younger than I really was. Uh, that's no longer a problem. (laughs) But at that time, I remember it was always like I had to ensure, I I had this feeling that some students didn't uh, didn't maybe respect me as much as they should because I was younger, smaller. And when my taller uh, American colleague walked in, they all like immediately respected him. But I was like, that's not fair. I have to work hard to gain your respect. So, uh, you know, there's been a couple of testing moments when, you know, I had to prove, uh, sort of get, work work to gain your respect. And I think uh, maybe it was because I'm a woman. Maybe it's because I'm small. I don't know what it was. But those were some testing uh, times. And so I had to put these boundaries, you know, just say, you know, I you have to listen to me. I am sort of the person leading the class. Mm-hmm. And and whereas this this person here who was tall and, <laughs> and you know he had all he had to do was just walk in and they would all be like okay you have to respect him you know it's like certain stereotypes it's, sometimes it's you have to work. Mm-hmm. I have one more question. So you talked about mentoring students and kind of bringing them on this scientific journey. And I'm sure that's very different in the classroom and in the lab. But I can imagine that the things that you're teaching, whether it's how to think in the classroom or how to run experiments in the lab, probably expands to other aspects of life. So do you have any ideas about why studying science could help your students, whether it's in medical school or if they're, if they want to go off and write a book or if they want to just explore a hobby, why? Yes. And- well, how you can influence them? I and I—that's I, a very good question because I really think um, the thing that you learn uh, as a researcher is is being able to think through problems um, more than doing a specific experiment, more than doing a technique. Uh, I really, really think you're able to think analytically. You know, this is a situation. How can I make this work? Because by now, I mean, as, as graduate students, you know, there's 90% of the time things don't work. And so um, I think the biggest thing you learn to do is to not get down when things are not working. And actually, you just sit down and say, okay, why is this not working? You know? So I think in terms of analytical thinking, it really helps. And the other thing I really te- uh, sort of tell my students is uh, don't try and re- reinvent the wheel, work in teams you know if somebody's already done this before it's okay you can go talk to them and get them to help you you know and teamwork is i think really really critical as as a graduate student you will be way ahead if you work in teams um if you sort of are have a big ego and sort of say you know what i'm going to learn this by myself of course you will you will eventually learn but you probably have lost a few months in learning that so i think teamwork and being able to think through situations um, analytically not just helps you in the lab uh, but even in in life right and that's why you know i feel like a phd is not about just going into an academic job you can go into science writing you can go into uh, consulting that's because you're trained to do all those different aspects so that's i think just day-to-day life as well as the different career options that you guys have really um opens up if you, uh, you know, during your PhD work.
1: Yeah, sort of general skills.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on
1: Brain Matters.